a look back on some of the issues that shaped our industry over the past year. From the National Business Aviation Association, these are the top three episodes of Flight Plan in 2022. I'm your host, Rob Finfrock, and let's get right to our third most downloaded episode for the year, addressing one of the top concerns for all business aviation operators, the question of privacy in the ADSB environment that makes it easier than ever for anyone with an internet connection to find your flight information. In April, NBAA Senior Vice President of Safety, Security, Sustainability, and International Operations, Doug Carr, and Heidi Williams, the Association's Senior Director for Air Traffic Services and Infrastructure, detailed two programs available to business aviation operators to help shield their data from prying eyes, the Privacy ICAO Address Program, or PIA, and LAD, which stands for Limited Aircraft Data Displayed. LAD is the replacement for what we knew as BAR program, the the blocking program that allowed operators to essentially navigate the NAS in an anonymous mode without sharing all of your company and, and private information with those who are utilizing tracking systems. So you actually make application with the FAA for the LAD program. They allow you to really opt to share your information if you desire to do so with various vendors that you may utilize for your business, or you may block at the the source and keep that information from being shared with the public or with vendors who utilize FAA data. Doug, how does another part of this effort, the Privacy ICAO Address Program, or PIA, further protect operator privacy? The PIA program is designed to enhance the ability to fly anonymously within the U.S. airspace system. The PIA program consists of two parts that are designed to interrupt identifiable information being shared by an aircraft's Mode S transponder. The first is the ICAO code or the HEX code, that six-digit code that is assigned to every Mode S transponder. The first part is to allow the FAA to assign a non-published hex code, ICAO code, to that aircraft for that mode S transponder. That code does not translate back to any aircraft registry information listed uh, on the FAA's uh, aircraft database. The second part of this is for the aircraft operator to secure a third-party call sign. And there are three or four of them out there all publicly available, so that the flight ID of the MODAS transponder, which if left unaltered for general aviation aircraft, usually will consist of the aircraft tail number, so that the flight ID can be used instead of the tail number, and that flight ID is also not connected to any aircraft registry information. With both of those, that helps an aircraft operator within the United States to shield their information much better from public display. So under PIA, the aircraft might still show up on a commercial flight tracking site that pulls ADSB data, but it wouldn't have any personally identifiable information attached to it. In most cases, uh, that aircraft will still show up because there's an aircraft that's still sharing information. The good part about the PIA program is that it will not connect to any information about the aircraft or the operator, the ownership information for the aircraft. 
Many of the business aviation community have utilized what was the BAR program and then transitioned to the LAD program for over a decade. And so we have many, many operators who are taking advantage of LAD today. PIA came online just a few months after the ADSB out mandate in January of 2020, and we have had some challenges we've worked through, and the FAA continues to work through those to help operators get over the challenge of integrating that new hex code. And so we continue to work with the FAA towards making that process a bit simpler, more agile, and the FAA is making provision to allow operators to hopefully get those codes in a more timely fashion. So if an operator determines that identifiable data has been compromised or it's showing up on a flight tracking site, what do they need to do to secure that data? That's a really pertinent question, and it's one that many of the business aviation community are are asking right now with some events over the the last few months. It's really come to light that there is a a time element that is super critical, especially when you go through the LAD and the PIA program. If you find that your information has been compromised or there's a security breach, The FAA has allowed for the the fact that you can acquire a new PIA code in a timely fashion. You simply need to reach out to them through their PIA portal. And so they will uh, provide a new IKO code in a a very short time frame that allows you to stay one step ahead of that independent network and folks who are attempting to track your information inside 60 days. Rob, in addition to Heidi's really good detail about how the program works, FAA has set a baseline of being able to change your code, basically to request a new ICAO hex code every 60 days. That's how the program was built, and that's how it's managed today. But as Heidi mentioned, where the operator has an understanding, a belief, knowledge, Examples of that code being compromised, basically where that code is now being used to identify an owner, an aircraft, the FAA will work with that operator directly to secure a new code. And Rob, let me just provide that email because, again, it's going through the FAA to acquire that new code in a a manner that's inside that 60-day window, right? And so operators would need to go back to the FAA at ADSB Privacy IKO at FAA.gov. And that starts that process to get you a new code inside 60 days. It's all about, you know, agility and and allowing for a system that's flexible enough to adapt to technology and to folks that are utilizing independent network. And and we find that the FAA is, is working to do that. Coming up are two most popular flight plan episodes of the year, each tackling different aspects of a topic that continues to dominate our world. But first, this word from NBAA. NBAA Flight Plan listeners, your podcast is ready everywhere. You can download it from iTunes, ask your smart speaker to give you a listen, or hear it in any car with Apple's CarPlay. NBAA Flight Plan, available anytime, anywhere. We're back now with our look back at the most downloaded episodes of Flight Plan over the past year. 
Mental wellness can be a sensitive subject among pilots, but it's extremely important that we remain cognizant of our mental and emotional well-being, along with our physical health. It's also vital we be open and honest with ourselves and with others during those times when we may need help in handling the stresses in our lives, particularly in the aftermath of COVID-19. In January, I was honored to welcome FAA Federal Air Surgeon Dr. Susan Northrup to a candid discussion about mental wellness that also featured Greg Farley, Aviation Director for John Deere, and a member of the Fitness for Duty Working Group of the NBAA Safety Committee, along with Working Group member Dr. Quay Snyder, President and CEO of Aviation Medicine Advisory Service, or AMAS. We'll pick up that conversation now from our second most downloaded episode of 2022. Dr. Northrup, 14 CFR 61.53, requires pilots with reason to believe or who know they have an impairment to stop flying and to seek treatment. But how can they know if their condition requires such actions? One of the best ways to report it is through your A&E, your aviation medical examiner, and they can help you walk through it. You know, barring that, or if you're not comfortable with your AME or they've retired, There are lots of advocacy groups out there that can help. The other really good place to find information is the Guide for Aviation Medical Examiners. And there are a whole bunch of disposition tables under the mental health pages. And in there, it it very clearly delineates what must be deferred to the FAA and what an AME could issue. So, for instance, let's take uh, bereavement. If the individual sought treatment and recovered... Even if they had been put on an antidepressant for a short period of time, with the right documentation from the treating providers, the AME can actually issue. Dysthymia is another one, um, and minor depression. Anything past that, the AME can help, or the advocacy groups, or even the airmen, if they're so inclined to do it themselves, can collect the information, and the general requirements are spelled out in the Guide for Aviation Medical Examiners, and present that to the FAA on their own. I would encourage any pilot that does that, even before you take the documentation to your AME or the advocacy groups, read what you're given. Make sure there aren't any errors in the documentation. Quay, with more people seeking help with mental wellness concerns during the pandemic, what resources are available for them to find help? There are some challenges with getting access to mental health professionals during this period of time. They're absolutely overwhelmed. Uh, Many of them cannot practice because they don't have licenses to do uh, virtual counseling. So the resources may be limited, but talking with someone, anyone, a close person, uh, someone through the EAP program, anything you can do if you're thinking of self-harm or harm to others, it's critical that you get this out in the open and get help as soon as possible. Greg, Quay mentioned EAPs, or Employee Assistance Programs. I know you're familiar with those. Please tell us more about what an EAP entails. Most of the time, they can be set up through the company, through a a separate provider, or they're part of your health insurance. Usually, just reach out to HR at your company and see if there is an EAP that is available. And there's usually a lot of resources. As companies move and progress, Um, There's becoming even more resources available besides EAP coaching resources, um, and there's some entities out there. And and while they may not completely understand aviation, if you're in a position where you're struggling, you need to get talking and you need to get opened up. And then companies like 
Quay or others that, that walk the medical and the airman medical certification, that's where you go to find out, okay, what do I need to do to keep going and to maintain my current medical? But if you're in a position of of struggling with events, then then you need to be talking, whether it's an EAP, whether it's a peer-based group. I know in our community, there's starting to be a lot of, of community groups, and that's turning into a resource while people are trying to get in to see a counselor. They're turning towards community kind of work groups to share and have a sense of community while they're struggling with issues. Dr. Northrup, what other steps would you recommend that are available to assist pilots in overcoming mental health concerns and, in more severe cases, to help them find their way back to the flight deck? If there's been an event that causes stress, humans react to that stress. And it may be psychologic, it may be physical. So part of it, particularly, for instance, following an aircraft incident or accident, there are critical incident stress management teams. Or there's concepts like that. And one of the things, particularly for that sort of incident, is the ability to normalize the response. And what I mean by that is you have something dreadful happen in your life. You can expect that you might relive that dreadful incident for a while. And that's normal up to a point. And what critical incident stress management does gives the individual a chance to say, okay, I'm allowed to feel like this this is okay. And then get them to a point where they're talking to people with similar things. Now that whole concept leads a bit into peer support networks. These are pretty common in the airline industry at this point, and it's beginning to get into some other areas of aviation. But essentially there are specially trained peers that someone who's having a rough spot can talk to. And sometimes just talking it out with another person that's in a similar career really helps. You can go talk to your pastor. You can go talk to a a clinical psychologist or psychiatrist, but there's lots of avenues to go. And if you're, you're having issues of that nature, again, you can go to the advocacy groups because several of them have networks established of people who understand aerospace medicine, who understands what it's like to be an airman and can help navigate the system. And as we've said a couple of times, it's critical to identify it early before it gets out of hand. Of course, many of us breathed a sigh of relief throughout 2022 as the urgency of the threat from COVID-19 seemingly finally eased, and we all reclaimed some badly needed normalcy in our lives. But as we just heard, many effects from the pandemic have lingered on, including the coronavirus's physical impacts. In fact, many have reported continuing symptoms and long-term physical effects well after their initial infections passed. In May, we examined these maladies and their impacts to the pilot community with a panel featuring Dr. Clayton Cowell, a pulmonologist and senior AME at the Mayo Clinic. AMAS's Dr. Quay Snyder, and Dr. Greg Vanichkachorn, Senior AME and Medical Director at Mayo's COVID Activity Rehabilitation Program. That conversation was our most downloaded flight plan episode of the year. Dr. Van, what symptoms might indicate to pilots in particular that they may be experiencing long COVID? You know, the symptom that we see most frequently with this long COVID condition is fatigue. And it's a quite profound and unique fatigue. You know, everybody has gone through a couple of nights of bad sleep or remember how we felt after having a bad cold or something like influenza, but this is different. For example, many patients, they'll say something like, 
you know, I went to take out my trash and then I needed to take a, a nap for two hours afterwards. Or I went for a short walk with my dog and I had worsened symptoms for for several days even afterwards. So the fatigue, and that's pretty much the hallmark feature that we see with this condition. But that being said, there's a lot of other symptoms that we know about that come with this. Things like coughing or shortness of breath. Uh, there can be tremors and headaches, ringing in the ears. And a lot of people have also reported troubles with their ability to think clearly. So, for example, people will say that they have troubles with short-term memory or uh, word finding during speech or multitasking. And this has been commonly referred to as a brain fog in the medium. And about half the patients that we've seen here uh, have been experiencing that. Now, those are the most common things that we see. But it, again, it just seems like every day we're learning more and more about this still new condition. And we are seeing more symptoms that could be potentially related to long COVID. Have you seen pilots coming to AMAS with long COVID symptoms, Dr. Snyder? Yes, we have, but it's been a relatively small minority of the total pilots. The pilots contacting our office are primarily those with concerns about their medical certification and the implications of their continuing symptoms. So surveying our 10 doctors, we really only have about 15 cases that we've been contacted about, with the majority of them complaining of the uh, brain fog that Dr. Van talked about, that the confusion, the memory problems, the difficulties with multitasking, and concerns about the aviation safety aspects of that. Dr. Cole, are the risk factors for long COVID similar to the risk factors we've heard about regarding the severity of the initial COVID-19 infection? Well, one of the interesting things that we've noted in not so much just the pilots, but the whole general population of those with post-COVID syndrome is that you know, oftentimes we initially thought that this would be a population much like uh, fibromyalgia. And in fact, what we found is that it is quite unlike that in that it's a much younger population. Um, so we see individuals, not just aviators, but from all walks of life that have been very active, who have exercised regularly, participated in marathons, and they've not had any other medical illnesses or injuries of, of note that cause functional limitation. These folks tend to be the ones that we see that have been more likely to get long-haul COVID. And again, as uh, Dr. Snyder has alluded to, fortunately, within the populations that we see, in particular uh, pilots, it's been relatively low prevalence overall. Now, that could be a little bit of self-selection process. In other words, uh, a pilot may not come for a flight physical, for example, if they're still suffering from these symptoms and or they may not call for aeromedical advice until they feel like they've at least achieved some sort of recovery. So again, it's more a younger population and a population that seems to have some sort of either immunocompromise or some effect where there could be some immunosuppression at, at some point in their life. But given the kinds of symptoms we've noted, like brain fog or chronic fatigue, those are conditions that any pilot shouldn't try to ignore. 
No, absolutely. And we get a ton of questions about what needs to be reported or what happens if I get a vaccine. And and we'd be happy uh, to share that information. In fact, I did have a conversation with Jim Duvall, who is in the medical specialties division at the FAA in Washington, just to make sure that there weren't any any new things that have come out because it's changing, as you've already alluded to so so quickly. And in fact, they would like to be able to have the AMEs document these cases. And in fact, what the FAA is concerned about is pilots who have required ICU care with or without a ventilator, and in fact, those that do have long-haul COVID. And in fact, if someone right now is applying for a medical and have symptoms consistent with post-COVID syndrome, as we call it, they actually ask within the Aviation Medical Examiner's guidelines to defer those cases for further assessment. What kind of treatment options are available to help combat long COVID symptoms, Dr. Van? No, that's a, that's a great question. And the fortunate answer is that much of the crucial treatment can be actually done at home by patients before they actually get to, let's say, a a long-haul COVID clinic at a large academic medical center. When people have COVID, uh, they are really sick of being sick. And so after their isolation period ends, we tend to see that patients really just want to bounce back to their normal life as quickly as possible. And so they they try to do their normal things, whether it be their full-time job or or exercising intensively and things like that. And this is often possible for a very short amount of time because, let's face it, they've been resting for about 10 days. But because of the nature of long-haul COVID, that can often cause a worsening of symptoms again for several days. And so patients, they often get themselves stuck in this sort of vicious cycle when they're pushing themselves too hard, trying to push themselves to recover more quickly. And they kind of go back and forth from doing something, having a flare of their symptoms, resting, that's more deconditioning, and then trying again and again and so forth. So one of the early things that we tell patients is that they really need to give themselves more time to recover. And that's really important to do from the very beginning. We are often right now seeing patients who don't have the quote-unquote normal recovery, like say within two weeks, but a slightly more prolonged one, about four to six weeks. And we find that if we can get patients giving themselves proper pacing, you know, prioritizing what's really important in their day and mentally letting themselves recover and not pushing themselves too hard, they can really help prevent the onset of long-haul COVID just by following that in those early weeks. We also have patients focus in on things like, you know, making sure their sleep is optimal, that we have patients um, eating and drinking well, because sometimes they can forget about that, especially if they have altered taste and smell. So those steps, those are all things that can be done um, by patients themselves without any additional input at home. And I think it's really crucial for that to happen in order for patients and pilots who may be experiencing symptoms to get better faster, which is becoming one of these really long haul cases. All the more reason to make wellness, physical, mental, and emotional, a resolution for 2023 and beyond. In fact, all these subjects will likely remain in focus throughout the year ahead, so be sure to listen to this weekly podcast at nbaa.org forward slash flight plan for all the latest news and information affecting our industry. You can find these three highlighted episodes archived there as well. 
And that's the latest from the National Business Aviation Association. Remember, you can subscribe to all Flight Plan episodes at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts, including by asking your virtual assistant or connected device. Of course, you can also download Flight Plan directly from nbaa.org. I'm Rob Finfrock. On behalf of NBAA and our production team members, Bob Searles, Dave Elliott, John Karn, and Karen Combs, have a wonderful, safe, and joyous holiday season. And we'll be back next year with new episodes of Flight Plan. Flight Plan.